Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Well, it is our 100th episode today, and we have a very special guest, so I'm going to pass the mic over to Alan to offer his welcome. Thanks, Darren. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to take the opportunity to thank all of you, the listeners to this podcast. The only reason we've reached this 100th episode is because of the encouragement and interest and feedback we've received from an audience, which, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't quite sure existed when Darren came to me with this proposal. But he was right. There you were. We found an engaged, informed community of people who shared our conviction that Australian foreign policy matters for everything we want to do as a country, from our security and prosperity to our environment, our health, our social relationships, even our sporting successes, anyone who's been watching the Commonwealth Games can attest. So we couldn't be more grateful for your support. Thank you. And we couldn't have asked for a more distinguished guest to mark this achievement than the Australian Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong. I'm not going to waste our time by introducing someone who is obviously known by every listener to this podcast. So thank you, Minister. Welcome and congratulations on your appointment. That's very kind of you. Thanks, Alan. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, Darren. Or they may not know me. You never know. There might be people listening who (laughs) haven't met me yet. Yeah, there'll be there'll be three-year-old kids being pushed (laughs) by their parents who (laughs) who are listening. Can I start Uh, by just congratulating you for your hundredth episode? Uh, And I am one of your listeners, and I found it through the years of being shadow foreign minister i found it incredibly useful uh, and you may or may not have noticed some of the things you've spoken about you know have informed some of the contributions we made in opposition so thank you for your contribution more generally but also specifically to to the work I, i've been doing over the last few years well that's the best validation we've ever had thank you <laughs> When we were talking about interviewing you, we decided that it made no sense to serve up the sort of questions you get from reporters at your regular media conferences. So what follows is a list that would almost certainly have been rejected by editors around the country if our journalist friends had proposed them. But we hope that they're going to add a different and useful dimension to public understanding of the foreign policy process and, uh, and of your thinking. So can I begin by asking why this job? You obviously knew what you were in for, but many Australians must have been surprised by the non-stop foreign policy action of the government's first few weeks. You have heavy additional responsibilities. You're leader of the government in the Senate and you have a young family. You've held other senior portfolios. So what is it about the job of Australian foreign minister and the job at this time that makes it important to you? Mm. Well, I think there's two parts to the answer. The first is a personal one, and that is when we lost government in 2013, um, I thought through what I'd like to do. And 
was pretty keen on foreign affairs. Obviously, the first three years uh, I was shadow trade. Uh, and then in the last six years of, of opposition, I, I was shadow foreign minister. And, and it was a job that I, I was really drawn to and very interested in and, and you know, very grateful to have the job I've got at the moment. You know, I suppose we were pretty busy in the first few weeks because it was needed, but also we'd had a long time to think about what we thought we wanted to do. Hmm. <laughs> I suppose the the bigger answer goes back to what I wrote a few years ago where I said these are the most challenging strategic circumstances since the end of World War Two, and uh, our region is being reshaped and... Uh, this generation of Australian leaders has a responsibility to influence this reshaping, and I wanted to be part of that. Minister, I'm really chuffed that you listened to the podcast, and I'm wondering if you've actually been listening in the last few months since you took government, because you've given us a lot to talk about, and it's, you know, for the first time we're analysing things that you have said. Uh, Have you been tuning in? Uh, I had this very weird experience flying back from what, one of my visits. I can't remember which one. Uh, and you were doing, not the, not the, so you did one which told us basically what we had to do in our first few weeks. Uh, uh, you, you gave us a to-do list, remember that? Mm-hmm. But the next one was you were looking at um, my visit to the Pacific, the IISS speech, so that was in Singapore, uh, um DPM Miles' speech uh, and some of what the PM had said. And so there was this whole sort of section which was analysing bits of what I'd said. And it was the weirdest weirdest experience because <laughs> there I am on the plane <laughs> listening to you analyse me. I thought really like I was, it was like a tutor or a, some sort of exam. <laughs> so it was, it was interesting. Well, that's actually where I wanted to start was with a comment you made when you were in Kuala Lumpur where you said, that Australia would reflect its rich multicultural character back to the world so the world could see itself in Australia. But your government has also stressed that on a number of issues, Australia's interests are unchanged, they're stable and consistent. So I'm wondering what you want our region to understand about how our more constant interests and our values are related to or even shaped by our evolving modern identity. Look, uh, I, I think there are. Uh, well, I have made clear that you know our, you know our national interests, our strategic policy settings haven't changed. But the, obviously, the government has, and how the government approaches engaging with the world and articulating those interests has changed. I guess I had. I saw the modern Australia or the identity point that you reference a little differently. For me, being who I am. I have so often found uh, in my engagement with family and friends overseas or when I'm overseas or that who we are has not been uh, truly reflected in how we uh, are understood by so much of our region and the world. And so it seemed to me such an extraordinary opportunity to really bring our multiculturalism and our diversity much more centrally into uh, the narrative of the Foreign Minister and the Prime Minister about who we are. Uh, as a way of increasing, I think, our our engagement with and our influence in uh, the region uh, and in the world more generally. Uh, And then obviously, in addition to to our our diversity, to talk about our First Nations peoples uh, and to make sure that we connected our domestic 
imperatives and our domestic agenda around voice treating truth with how we spoke to with the world about ourselves. So I saw it very much as this is the way we present to the world because we haven't been presenting who we are. In your first speech to Parliament delivered almost exactly 20 years ago, actually, in August of 2002, which I had the pleasure of going back and reading, you made compassion a central theme. Then your focus was on Australian society and Australian politics. And you said, quote, compassion is what underscores our relationships with one another. And it is compassion which enables us to come to a place of community, even in our diversity, end quote. I'm wondering whether and how compassion might play a role in the most difficult foreign policy questions, indeed where compassion might be at its most elusive. Take our relationship with China, for example. Can compassion contribute to managing a complex and challenging relationship like that one? When I posited compassion in the way I did, I don't think I thought about it as a sort of tool of foreign policy. (laughs) Uh, I think I was responding very much to the time in which that speech was given. So after the Tampa election, uh, after the the sort of history of Pauline Hanson and the comments that she had made and the importance of articulating, I guess, the emotional values, which seemed to me to underpin diversity uh, and respect And my point about compassion was uh, being able to see things. I suppose it's an empathy point, isn't it? It's it's actually saying, I feel for you because I'm able to see some of what it is for you, some of what life is like for you or some of what your experience means for you. I suppose if we were to apply it to an international point, I think what I do try and do and what in many ways part of the the system of diplomacy or the tool of diplomacy requires is understanding where others are coming from and really trying to understand that, both analytically but also culturally, recognising that you know you have to work pretty hard to get sort of cross-cultural understanding. This might be a linked question. In Margaret Simon's biography, she quotes you reflecting on the importance to your work of what you call thinking time. You tell her that, and I'm quoting you here, Thinking time allows you to settle yourself, to determine what's urgent and what is important, to be creative and think laterally, to which any observer of recent events or maybe any observer of any minister at any time is tempted to respond, good luck with that. I mean, it's hard enough for any of us to do, but so important. So I guess my question is, how do you manage it? Is it something you do formally or informally, how do you ensure that you're just carried along on a one-way treadmill by events? I think I do it imperfectly, Alan. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's an aspiration. It it is um, that insight was a really important learning from my last period in government, an important lesson. And I tried to carry it with me. And really there's two aspects to it, isn't there? I mean, there's the you need thinking time. And secondly, you have to work out how you try and separate the urgent and the important. And they are ongoing challenges. Um, uh, So, you know, I guess I, I try and reflect where I can. I often find, don't you, that the best insights come to you when you're doing other things. I suppose mm. some somebody who's a 
better understanding of sort of co- cognitive psychologists would explain it to me. But mm-hmm. yeah, so so I'll, I'll be in the shower, I'll be going for, I'll walk the dog, or I'll be doing something with my daughter, and I'll suddenly think, oh, I should put this into a speech. I should do this, mm-hmm. and I, I think you know, giving yourself space to do that mm-hmm. uh, is really important, uh, particularly at this time, uh, you know, where if we're the comment I've previously made about you know the playbook of past generations is not is not fit for purpose for the next for for the current one. That means you actually have to think about it, doesn't it? It does. Uh, Minister, you've spoken of the growing pressures on our democratic processes mm. and our democratic institutions. Now, thankfully, Lowy Institute polling indicates that Australians' preference for democracy is at a record high, so that's good. But that's not true universally across the Western world. For democracies like Australia, is there a distinctive role for foreign policy, so what a nation is doing abroad, in contributing to public trust in democratic institutions at home? Well, I think first the resilience of the nation includes the resilience of our democratic institutions uh, and there are many examples to which you can point around the world where that's that's confirmed. So uh, we have an obligation, uh, all of us, so leaders, whether it's, you know, thought leaders or podcast uh, leaders and writers like yourselves or um, political leaders or community or business leaders, I think we, we do have an obligation to try and strengthen our democratic institutions. I suppose the way I see that interacting with foreign policies, I would say that the democratic principles contribute to or are part of the the, the foundation or the architecture of multilateralism, of how we construct and manage uh, and support global public goods um, uh, and principles of um, you know, international law. So I, I see those democratic principles as contributing to and you know, I'm sure that Alan would have a much more theoretical theoretically accurate way of describing this but it seems mm-hmm. to me democratic principles contribute to the those inter, international uh, and multilateral structures processes which matter so much to Australia as a middle power so it's a, a story of consistency what yeah. we practice at home we want to practice that's a slightly different point and i think that's a really important point and i actually think one of the reasons why it's so important for us to engage in the next steps of real reconciliation with first nations peoples and to respond respectfully to for their call for voice treaty truth is because it is about us demonstrating and behaving in ways which are consistent with the principles we articulate to the world a question about foreign policy making. While DFAT notionally has the lead on foreign affairs, almost every Commonwealth department has an international footprint. You said in a speech last year at the ANU in talking about Australia's diplomatic capability that, quote, DFAT needs clearer political leadership and a sharper understanding of its role, responsibilities and potential. What, if anything, needs to change about how the whole of government is structured and coordinated to lift our diplomatic capability? I'd do it the other way around, actually. I I think it starts by we have to, and I gave a speech to the department this week where I said this, we have to work together to ensure we lift our capability so we are 
uh, the portfolio that leads on Australia's international engagement uh, and are able best to contribute to that whole of government direction. So I could talk about, you know, my view about what has happened under past governments where, where you know, I think the, the levers of state power uh, have not been supported equally or have not been accorded equal value. I think that was a mistake and I've, I've said that. So I think we have to use all levers uh, of state power uh, and from my perspective as uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, I want to take that leadership role with the department uh, across the government. What do you learn about the department through the Senate estimates process? Not so much the policy of the government of the day, but did you learn anything about the bureaucracy uh, and the way bureaucrats work through observing and questioning officials at those hearings? Oh, I learnt a lot. <laughs> Can you be more specific? <laughs> I'm a woman of few words sometimes, Derek. <laughs> Especially when, you know, look, I did learn a lot. I learned, um, I mean, there are obviously parts of the department which which I, I thought were stronger than others. I thought there were parts of the department that understood their role more than others. Uh, and that's partly why I talked about leadership in that speech. Because generally, you know, the public servants are... are, are responsive but you have to you have to be clear with them what you're seeking and you have to be you have to demonstrate leadership uh, less in an you know sort of an authority sense than in showing them where you want to go and you have to do that that's actually the role ministers have in our system i think it's to give direction and and impetus to policy direction given that aspects of foreign policy demand a degree of discretion. How well do you think our bureaucrats are managing the trade-off between secrecy and accountability? Oh, that, I mean, that's always, a, that's always a line that you, ha you have to sort of apply first principles to, I think, what you can speak about, what, it, what is not useful for the country for you to speak about. Uh, and... You know, you make those calls every day in these jobs, don't you? Yeah. Um, and I, I think the, the approach I'd take is what is, you know, which, which course, you know, will most further Australia's national interest. You, you should not um, do something simply because of domestic politics. You obviously have to think about that, but uh, you, you, you can't be driven by that in this portfolio. I think that discipline is really important. Darren and I find ourselves talking a lot about agency on this podcast. That is, how much power and influence does Australia have to shape outcomes in the world and how much are we constrained by the world around us? Now, coming from a practitioner's background, I'm convinced, because I guess I have to be, that Australia has a shaping weight in the world. Um, Darren, as a scholar and theorist, is less convinced that I'm not fooling myself. So, look, it's early days yet. But... Does he have a model for that? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's our next episode. Our next episode. <laughs> it's early days yet, but how strong is your sense that foreign policy outcomes for Australia will be different at the end of the first term of the Albanese government than they would have been without you and your colleagues? Uh, well, 
Um, is outcomes the, the only metric, do you think? I mean, I think we, we do have agency and we do have capacity to influence the shape of outcomes. And uh, often the uh, outcomes should be measured by counterfactual and not in an absolute sense. Hmm. So can we shape things so that things are better or less worse for the country as opposed to is this outcome good or bad for the country? Because the world we're in is, you know, we're, we're in a, a, when, you, when things are being re, reshaped, when, when yeah. the global and regional order are essentially being reshaped as we speak, we're operating in a world where we are trying to find the best available counterfactual for the country. Uh, and do I think it will be better under us? Uh, yes, I do. But I, uh, you know, I'm sure others will. You know, that will be debated in years to come. And I think fundamentally it will be better because we are so focused on that task. Whereas I would argue, and I know you're not hugely political on this podcast, I would argue that too much of the previous government's approach was uh, either focused on domestic politics or passivity. On the subject of diplomacy, the editor of the Lowy Interpreter, Dan Flitton, recently had the idea of asking some of the less well-known envoys around Canberra what they would ask the Prime Minister if they could have 30 minutes with him. Now, his first guest was the Botswana High Commissioner, Dorcas Makato, who is also a former government minister, and she made the obvious and important point that demographic reasons alone, Africa is going to be central to the world's future. But she surprised me by telling Dan that she was not able to see officials at assistant secretary level in DFAT. The Ukraine invasion reminds us that our interests are global and China's footprint is growing, but there's obviously a bandwidth issue at the same time. The Indo-Pacific is the priority and we can't do everything. Were you surprised by the High Commissioner's comments? And how do you think about balancing regional with global interests, both in your own work and the department's? Well, of course, we have to work to balance both. And I think on one of your podcasts, one of you made the comment that, you know, we're not a global power, but we have global interests. And that's true. So, I suppose I've made the resource decision or the prioritisation decision that my focus will be primarily our region, so Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe what we have we have to engage with other parts of the world. And I, I would make the point that multilateralism is just so important for a country of Australia's size. And, you know, you know the, the history... Uh, we could reference, which which demonstrates whether it's in terms of our uh, diplomatic, national security or economic position, how important multilateral frameworks have been to Australia. Part of why I sought not just a, a junior minister, uh, an outer ministry minister in Pat Conroy for the Pacific and, and Development, but also an, uh, an assistant minister was I re recognised we needed people in lots of places uh, and we need to be able to pursue our, our, our global interests, climate, uh, multilateralism, rules-based trade, pandemic preparedness in our region, but also beyond our region. Uh, so we have uh, a track record on that of working 
uh, for positive outcomes multilaterally. We had a very good result recently in the WTO in the fisheries agreement where we work closely with Pacific to end fishing subsidies. Uh, and that's a reminder of why our global interests uh, matter as an absolute, but they also matter in our region. Minister, for our final question, we'll turn to the final segment of our podcast, which we call Reading, Listening and Watching, where we offer recommendations. So we'd like to offer you the chance to recommend something you've read or listened or watched recently. But before you get to that, can I also ask, across your career, have you consistently gravitated towards certain types of source material to inform yourself about the world, such as histories or biographies, particular points in time, contemporary analyses, or maybe novels, or perhaps even weighty tomes of international relations theory? What, With what, lots of models. <laughs> what, what, what do you gravitate towards? Uh, I think I've changed. I mean, I, over time, I have found I read fiction much less and and that has been a bit sad to be honest because it's less a choice than just a function of how much material you have to consume and uh, I guess in this job I, I, I was really conscious when I started how little I knew so I guess I, I went through a process of, of reading quite a lot of books and then reading quite a lot of journal articles and listening to podcasts to try and inform myself uh, as someone who hadn't really studied foreign policy or international relations. But there's, there's a lot of reading happening. I, I finally started another fiction book while I, I had a, you know, five or six days leave, so that was good. Uh, and to be honest, I, the things I watch tend to be the things my children watch. So, so, you know, in, in the Heights was the last thing I can remember sitting down with the torch. And the, I said to my staff, uh, the last uh, theatre, you know, live performance I went to was actually Frozen, the musical. So there you go. <laughs> Until I went to my first concert in about five years a few weeks ago, the last thing I had seen was also Frozen, the musical. So. It was so much fun, though. It was I really enjoyed I mean, when you're dealing with uh, the sort of strategic competition and the hard edge of what's happening in our region, it was kind of fun to go and see something like that, don't you? Reckon? A little bit of escapism. Well, Minister, Senator Penny Wong, we're so honoured and thrilled that you could join us for the 100th episode of Australia in the World. Thank you again. Well, thank you. And thank you both for what you contribute individually and together to thinking about Australia's place in the world. Well, that's all for this, the 100th episode of Australia in the World. We thank Annabelle Howard for audio editing today and also all of Annabelle's predecessors over the past three years, each of whom was vital in making this podcast possible. And that also includes Rory Stenning, who composed our theme music. Thanks to you all and talk to you again soon. <laughs>